0: Hi, and welcome to This Bumps For You, a new podcast where we discuss surrogacy in Canada. I am your host, Michelle Avery. I am a five-time surrogate and currently work at a Canadian surrogacy agency. Today's episode is all about becoming a surrogate in Canada, what the qualifications are, what the screening processes are, along with covering what the IVF and transfer processes look like. I am happy to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Ari Baratz, who is a reproductive endocrinologist at Create Fertility Centre in Toronto. Dr. Baratz, if you'd like to take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience.
1: Well, thank you, Michelle. I am a um, certified reproductive endocrinologist and fertility specialist here in Toronto, and my practice is dedicated to helping um, individuals and couples through all versions of fertility care, we definitely have a very large interest in those interested in third party reproduction, including uh, egg donor, sperm donor, and uh, surrogacy. And I'm very happy to chat with you today about um, surrogacy as an option for couples moving forward.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. We're so happy to have you. Uh, So we do have a lot of questions that we field when we have candidates applying to be a surrogate. And that's what we're here today to discuss is all of the things about becoming a surrogate in Canada. So my first question for you, Dr. Baratz, is what are the clinic requirements in Canada and why do you have each of these in place?
1: Well, we want everyone to be successful in their journey, but probably as important, if not more important, we want people to be safe and when we say safe, we mean we want uh, our intended parents and their, their future babies and children to be safe. We want our surrogates to be safe. We want our egg donors to be safe. We want our, our staff and our, um, our whole team to be safe. So safety really wraps everything. And, and when you talk about clinic requirements, that's really what, what drives it. Uh, and we talk about safety in terms of when we medically screen our, our surrogates and our intended parents, we screen them for any um, infectious disease issues, we screen them for their general health, which we'll talk a little bit about later, but um, I would say the requirement would be that a clinic is accredited in their specific region, whether it's by their in the province or um, you know nationally, uh, and that they maintain that ongoing accreditation. And so that they have experience working with surrogates and intended parents, uh, and that they can maintain the highest standards, uh, both in, in providing ongoing care to intake surrogates and intended parents, and... Most surrogacy clinics will have an IVF laboratory. The IVF laboratory itself also has to be uh, accredited and that accreditation has to be maintained. Right.
0: Okay, great. Well, that is a great, uh, great spot on safety and understanding that no matter what the result is, when you bring a gestational surrogate, a gestational carrier into your program, you're looking out for the best interests of the surrogate, as well as the intended parents, as well as the clinic. The clinic has very specific safety protocols to follow, too. So that's great.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll follow that up by saying we want everyone to be successful, but um, success cannot be put ahead of uh, safety. And, and the first principle in medicine uh, is first do no harm. Uh, and, and so that that really guides Uh, Really the process from the start to finish is we want to ensure um, the highest qualities of success, uh, but never compromise uh, the quality of care for all those involved.
0: Great. That's a great answer. Um, Okay, so moving on to the next one. I'm not sure how often you would get this question, Dr. Bratz, but we do get it quite frequently where Mm -hmm. surrogate candidates are asking us, what is the difference between a U.S. clinic and a Canadian clinic and their requirements?
1: Right. Well, first of all, I think it's a great question because if you're if you're looking um, at a potential uh, environment to go through your surrogacy journey, and you're coming from outside of North America, you typically will compare the U.S. to Canada. Uh, and I would say at a high level, you're looking at two very competent jurisdictions. These are two places that do a lot of surrogacy. Firstly, uh, Canada is organized as provinces, and the United States is organized as states. And Unlike the United States, in Canada, the, there's quite a bit more harmony uh, between the provinces, uh, whereas in the United States, I would say there's more disparity between the states to a point where there are many states where um, you will not be able to uh, engage in a, in a surrogacy, in a surrogacy uh, journey. But uh, I, from, a, from a medical perspective, up until a few years ago, there was a lot of disharmony between the standards that were maintained in Canada and the standards that are made in the US, but currently um, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and the Canadian Fertility and Andrology Society, so the two groups that help provide, and Health Canada and the FDA, which are the which are the groups that provide oversight for the process, have for the most part harmonized the requirements. So if you were to look at them, they would be very similar in the US and Canada. Um, I'm not speaking to all the legals, which, um, the lawyers can comment on at some point. But in terms of what we expect from a surrogate, how we medically screen them, what we use as exclusion criteria, inclusion criteria, uh, relative exclusions uh, are very similar in the two areas. So I think from a quality perspective, from an IVF clinic perspective, you're looking at two very high-end uh, high areas. One of the areas I think that's been very progressive in Canada are the laws around surrogacy have become have become liberalized, whereas in many places in the U.S., I think that is still a gap.
0: You're absolutely correct, and and we know that right. many states in the U.S. Uh, surrogacy is is not harmonized at all, uh, and hmm. and therefore they don't even have availability but, for surrogacy.
1: But what's interesting, you know, just thinking a little bit further along, you know, if I was coming to let's say North America from Europe. Uh, you know, one time, just to use an analogy, when you travel, you always worry about the different voltages, like, is my plug going to plug into my European plug, or my North American plug. And so very often patients worry if they have embryos, if they're starting their journey in the US or Canada, that there'll be some discordance, and that they won't be able to use their embryos in one area or another, because the plug won't won't fit. But the nice thing about IVF is that IVF is an international, and surrogacy is an international experience. And the embryos that one generates can easily easily be transported from one place to another, or with maybe not easily, but with, without much difficulty. Um, right. And there is quite a bit of uh, communication between IVF labs in the world. So we do meet a lot of people who start their journey in one place and then have to move part of their journey to another without really any significant uh, detriment.
0: Which is an amazing thing uh, with your practice because you are able to accept those embryos based on the Health Canada standards that you operate under uh, with the safety and compliance, but you're also able to take intended parents from across the world.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes. I mean, that's the nice thing about Canada is that um, even in the depths of COVID, I, I believe that Canada is so well placed geopolitically in terms of its laws, in terms of its regulations, in terms of its ability to adapt. Uh, and it's healthcare infrastructure that, uh, and it's so well supported that we really were, were not radically affected by COVID. I mean, it may it require changes, uh, but we right. were able to continue working through that.
0: So the next question we have and we and we actually get this question quite frequently on our social media um, where we're posting different things and somebody will say like, oh, well, you know, I got my tubes tied. I can't be a surrogate. So can we talk about the misconceptions of what might qualify somebody from becoming a surrogate in retrospect to that?
1: Um, So let's talk about what qualifies someone as a surrogate and then we can move into what disqualifies them. So, so to qualify as a surrogate um, again, you, you go back to the guidelines around clinics using surrogates. That was sort of in your first question. Uh, so a clinic that is maintaining um, their qualifications will be well positioned to provide entry criteria for a surrogate. So we, we have, you know, an age range uh, typically in the early twenties to the mid forties general health so they are allowed to have, uh, you, as a surrogate, you're allowed to have uh, medical conditions. They just have to be well-managed. Um, and then we require, and again, this is not a standard requirement, but it is a highly recommended requirement, both in Canada and the US, that surrogates will have carried at least one successful pregnancy either for their, for their, on their own uh, in the past. That doesn't mean that they can't have had terminations or miscarriages or unsuccessful pregnancies. We just want to make sure that there's been evidence that they can carry a pregnancy to, uh, to very near term or term. So those would be like the main inclusions. Um, the exclusions are the flip side of that, right? So poor health or uncontrolled medical issues, uh, someone who has not carried a pregnancy before, uh, but certainly any of the permanent contraceptive or semi-permanent contraceptive, situations like someone who's had their fallopian tubes tied is not exclusion to being a gestational carrier. That would be an exclusion for someone who's doing traditional surrogacy, which we're not, I don't typically get involved with. Uh, right. Someone Someone who has had terminations before or has an IUD in place is not an exclusion to being a surrogate. We would just remove the IUD and then do extra tests of the uterus, which would be done anyway, uh, special ultrasounds. Uh, and certainly C-sections, again, on their own, we know that the C-section rate, at least in Canada, in some locations is as high as 30 to 40%. And so if we excluded all those women from being surrogates, you would really limit uh, the availability of, of surrogates in Canada. And so what we do is we look at the obstetrical record. So we look at someone's past history, both the history they provide on intake, uh, the medical record, obstetrical record they have from their previous experiences or journeys. And then we also, obviously, as part of the medical screening, we meet and interview uh, surrogates. Uh, And we try and learn more about their their past history, including the C-sections. There is some concern with the increasing number of C-sections and success as a surrogate. Again, that would be on a case-per-case basis. I can't say there's a hard cutoff. Just the worry is that as someone has more cesarean sections, the integrity of the uterus may be compromised. But there are tests that we can do for that. We can measure the scar thickness of the C-section scar. We can, again, look at the uterus through ultrasound. Uh, and so, whether someone's had multiple C sections or multiple, multiple deliveries, the concern is with something called grand multiparity. So, as there are more deliveries, at some point we may decide that the risk of another pregnancy is too high. Uh, again, that has to be done on a case per case basis.
0: So we can we can say to all of our potential candidates: if you have your tubes tied, if you've had a C section, if you have an IUD, um, you are still. A good, you're still potentially a good, a good candidate. Uh, what about an ablation? We do get that question as well. Uh,
1: that's a non-starter. Yeah, that's you know, a no, non-starter. Uh, yeah, yeah, ablation, ablation means that the uterine lining, what we refer to as the endometrium, has been essentially permanently destroyed. Um, there's also something that sounds a lot like ablation called an embolization, which is um, when selective blood vessels to the uterus fibroids are stopped or interrupted. That's a radiology procedure. So embolizations or ablations, at least in my practice, would be exclusions because we know that the implantation rates in those women are significantly reduced. In fact, we meet intended parents who have had ablations or uh, embolizations and then are requesting a surrogate.
0: Great. And that just kind of leads into the next question that that would be uh, one of the relevant medical or health reasons that would very specifically disqualify a candidate from becoming a surrogate. Is there anything else specifically that that you can Uh, add to that list?
1: Well, what I would say is that, I mean, look, we mentioned that the inclusion criteria are early 20s to mid 40s, generally good health, and an obstetrical history that supports at least one successful pregnancy. That's very broad. I think if someone's interested in being a surrogate or an intended parent has identified someone in their life who they think could be a surrogate, uh, I think they should just work with their local agency who has my direct ear. I know you guys email me all the time yes. and ask me questions. And then we just, we seek either my opinion or sometimes we escalate it to get a maternal fetal medicine opinion. Um, so it never hurts to ask the question. You know, we, we all feel that there's only, thing, there's only one thing more special than receiving a surrogate baby. It's being a surrogate for somebody, right? And so right. that whole surrogacy experience, we don't want to... Um, eliminate people without good reason. Uh, And so I'd much rather field a few emails, have a few conversations and make a definitive decision than someone making an assumption that they were not a good candidate. Um, I can't promise that we're going to be answering favorably. I mean, it, it is possible to say, sorry, this doesn't sound good, but at least we can go through the exercise. And you know what? Someone who's surrogate minded, maybe they themselves might not be a surrogate, but they might identify someone else who they know. So it becomes a bit of a network. Uh, so the what questions. An amazing are key... answer. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think it's important. That's great. Because...
0: That's a great answer. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah. So I, I. So my my general feeling is, we shouldn't be pushing people too hard to become a surrogate if we feel that there's a safety issue, but we should give everyone a chance and give everyone a consideration uh, to give them a definitive answer.
0: Great, I love that answer. All right, so so I guess, this, and just this, this kind of is flowing into the next. I know we talked about specific testing that you can do in the uterine cavity. You can check for scar tissue, endometrial mm-hmm. lining. Uh, what other tests are involved in the medical and psychological screening to become a surrogate in Canada?
1: Well, so first of all, it is a team approach to uh, assessing a a surrogate. I would say the main the three main players in that would be a physician or a nurse practitioner under the guidance of a physician. Uh, we use, we use ner- general nurses and we have counselors and those medical, including myself, and those medical professionals provide all of the modes of testing. So part of it will be uh, history. Uh, so testing involves a detailed knowledge of what the surrogate has gone through in their life from a medical perspective, medications, allergies, exposures, uh, obstetrical history. We do extensive blood work, primarily looking at their general health in entering a pregnancy, including uh, their serologies. So that means like what, what they're immune to and what viruses they may, may have been exposed to. Uh, and then we do do a specific ultrasound and the ultrasound has, has typically, and swabs to look for other viruses and pap testing, but we will do uh, an ultrasound that just checks the entire pelvis. Uh, that's both an external and internal ultrasound, very similar to the ultrasound that many surrogate women would have had in their past pregnancies. Uh, and then It's standard of care to provide what's called a sonohistogram, uh, essentially a water-based ultrasound that lets us look at the lining of the womb because that is so critical to the success of the surrogacy journey. Uh, And that would be, I would call that the basic set on the medical side. Uh, And then on the psychological side, our trained social workers will have a, a programmed approach to asking specific questions Of the surrogate about aspects of their decision and what they should expect in being a surrogate. Uh, With the medical and the psychological uh, interviews and examinations, they are screens, so they may lead to deeper testing. On the medical side, uh, we may find in the uterus that there might be something that we see, like a little polyp or a little fibroid. And so we will offer the surrogate treatment for that. So some of that testing might be done locally, like if they live in a certain part of the country, and I'm located in Toronto, or if your clinic is located in Vancouver or Calgary or Edmonton, then the local clinic might um, provide the platform for that treatment, or they may request that you go to a different city to have it done. Uh, I would say that's not the majority of the time. Majority of the time, the actual screening goes quite smoothly. We don't require deeper testing. On the psychological front, if we identify any history of mental illness or or questions around mental fitness, then we want to help people. So we will look for other ways of supporting them uh, through their general doctor and see if we can come to a, a point where we can, we, we can confirm that psychologically someone fully appreciates what they're getting into.
0: Great. That, that sounds very expensive and very yeah. thorough. Um, and you know, and again, I, I like, yeah, everybody's safety.
1: I, I like to comment on that. I, I think it it is really important to stress that it, it is extensive and, and it, it's there for, for that purpose of making sure that there is full informed consent for every female that is embarking on being a gestational carrier and it provides confidence to all those working with that surrogate including the intended parents that we've put safety at the forefront uh, and so and it's also an opportunity to ask questions about the process because many surrogates have have not carried a, an IVF pregnancy before uh, and as they enter the IVF process it's really a new territory for them and sometimes, a surrogate mother will actually want to embark on a second surrogate journey. So it acts as like an education around this whole new space that they've never explored before.
0: Right. And understanding how expansive it is, uh, also giving the comfort to the the gestational carrier uh, to know that her health is being taken into priority and it is paramount in the success of this journey. Uh, So that's that's also really great. Uh, And I also, you know, from my own experience with CREATE and with JA surrogacy and the surrogates we've had, we have seen where the medical process has brought up some issues that the surrogate may not be aware of potentially right. an increased uh, thyroid level, an increased TSH. Um, and it's so comforting to know that the clinic is willing to work with the issues that can be resolved to get that surrogate. I,
1: I'm really, house. I'm really glad you raised that Michelle, uh, because that's a really important point as well, that through screening uh, and, and we're talking about surrogates today, but it might apply to egg donors as well, or even intended parents. We may identify right. something that is peculiar to this process but may or may not have any implication of your general health. We are prepared and and happy to assist with that. It might be a correction that's specific to the uh, embryo transfer, early pregnancy, surrogacy pregnancy, and may not have any issue later in this person's life. Or it may be something that we identify and we kickstart treatments that will help this person actually be healthier over their lifetime. Like thyroid, again, many women, as they hit their late thirties, early forties, their thyroid gland, the gland of the neck, Uh, has increased demands and screening typically brings that out. And so being put on thyroid medication does not commit someone to a lifetime of thyroid, but it does allow them to at least go back to their own family doctor or practitioner once their surrogacy journey is complete and reevaluate their health. And, and, And maybe they might even be better for it in the end
0: I know in my experiences that I was create fertility uh did diagnose an increased thyroid level in me at at, when I started my first journey back in the early 2010s and it was it was something that I didn't know existed in my body and now knowing that and having to go back to my family doctor and have a resolution and I was able to carry you know for five surrogate babies after that so yeah it actually did uncover something specifically for me that I was not aware of so I'm glad Uh, that we could speak about that
1: Right. And it's also important that uh, people embarking on surrogacy know that once we identify something, it becomes part of their medical record, it will pass on to the next set of providers uh, and they will co-manage and then take over that. So uh, they don't need to remember all of those details. We will always right. make sure that those specifics will become part of their file because they do have their own file. Uh, and when they do move on and when they're successful with an ongoing pregnancy, the next set of providers, whether it's midwife, uh, general practitioner, or obstetrics right. will help manage uh, and, and take ownership over that part of their care.
0: Great. Um, okay, so moving on to the next question we get, uh, which is, again, a question that we, we field very, very frequently on our social media, um, is about the genetics of the baby, and how is the surrogate possibly not genetically related to the child she's carrying? So can you go into some of the science uh, of, the, of the IVF and the creation of the embryos to give our sure. listeners a better understanding?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, uh, it's very important that we define the two main types of surrogacy that one might encounter on the internet or when they're learning. So there's something referred to as traditional surrogacy uh, and then we're something referred to as uh, gestational carrier type surrogacy arrangement. I am specifically speaking about a gestational carrier, which means that the surrogate is not providing any of the genetic material to this uh, baby. They are receiving an embryo from an intended parent, which may be the combination of an egg and or sperm from that couple or from some donated source. Uh, But she is not providing any specific genetic material. And and I'll go into how that works in a second, as opposed to traditional surrogacy, where the traditional surrogate is providing both the egg and the uterus. And so what's happening is sperm is being placed inside of her through various approaches. And so she is both the genetic mother and the birth mother. That is not something that I will be discussing today. Right. Um, So let's further understand gestational carrier, the genetics. So an embryo, a baby comes from an embryo and the embryo typically is 50% genetic egg and 50% genetic sperm. Uh, and so that egg and sperm are, are assembled in, a, in one of our IVF laboratories outside of uh, the intended parent's body. Uh, and, and we clearly identify where the egg and where the sperm is coming from. So that's, that's one piece. So we know definitely which embryo and where the egg and sperm have come from. But on the other side with the surrogate, typically the preparation techniques that we use uh, for the surrogate involve hormones that block ovulation. And so ovulation in a reproductive age female is how they release an egg and provide their own genetic material to the process. But because we're blocking ovulation in the surrogate female, preparing her uterus to receive an embryo from outside from the lab on both those fronts, You've essentially eliminated the ability of the surrogate female to provide her genes to that process. Now, she's providing many supports. I mean, she's providing a a beautiful environment and she is supporting that pregnancy. So she's providing a significant amount of the health and and well-being of this child. But when it comes to the genetics, the genetics, which means like the blueprint that we each have that makes us each distinct, are coming from another non-gestational carrier source. Uh, now, in terms of proving that, well, first of all, we do provide the medical evidence in terms of uh, how the embryos were So we sign affidavits that lawyers will generate. In some countries, there are paternity testing that's required, so like a blood test or, or a cheek swab taken from the baby Um, And the parent and and or the surrogate to confirm that they are not the same. In Canada, that's not required, the affidavit is sufficient. And if we're dealing with international intended parents, they may or may not choose to have that paternity testing done locally in Canada, or on their return to their uh, home country. And depending on the country, the requirements may be different.
0: Right. I just have one thing uh, because again, this is something that we, we field on our social medias uh, quite frequently. It's like, okay, so now you've explained the process of how the embryo is made. It's made in the lab. It's grown for five days. um, And then we're transferring it to the, to the surrogate. The surrogate is providing this beautiful uterine environment, nice and fluffy for the, for the embryo to implant. Uh, But many people will question the blood flow from the placenta. How does the surrogate and the baby never exchange blood flow? So, I know that the placenta doesn't um, doesn't allow blood to flow in between, but yeah. is there a scientific reason or a scientific spin sure. you can put on that for us?
1: Sure. sure. Well, it, it's interesting because when you look at like when you're not pregnant, the body flows blood in what we call like in series. So, one system passes to the next system and it kind of flows and then it goes to the heart and it comes back and it's one continuous track. Um, You know, if you ever saw an anatomy picture of what the blood circulatory system looks like, you see blood flowing all through the body. Now, when you have someone that's pregnant, we have something called the placenta and the placenta is, is essentially a large barrier. And what it does is it creates a blood flow system with the baby that is one system. And that is in parallel with the mom's own blood system. So in fact, the blood of the baby and the blood of the placenta are never directly communicating with each other. And the way the baby gets rid of waste is via that placenta. So that placenta becomes like this big uh, sponge, let's say, that picks up all the waste from the baby and sends it off to mom to get rid of through her lungs and her excrement. And then it's also a sponge that soups up all of the positive things from the mom and then passes it on to the baby. So the placenta becomes this big interface, uh, and what it's doing is it's allowing all the good things to come in and the bad things to go out. But in terms of influencing the DNA and the genes of that baby, those are all determined in the embryo. Right. So that's that's. I'm not sure if that answer sure is simple, but it does As, get. Does, little, yes. Yeah, but it does get a little bit more complicated because we do know, and this is why it's so important that we properly medically medically screen surrogates and that we properly support them throughout our pregnancy, because as part of our screen, we also do an extensive toxicology screen to make sure that surrogates are not smoking or, or drinking or doing drugs. Right. Because we know that if, if the surrogate mother or a person carrying their own baby has a negative environment, that can influence the development of the baby independent of the genes. So excessive smoking, drinking, drug use, toxic behavior, those things, even if they're not genetic, will influence the way the baby expresses its genes and the way it develops. So it's paramount that we maintain a healthy lifestyle for our surrogates and that we support them and make sure that they know how, how important that healthy lifestyle is.
0: That's a great point. Uh, did you have anything else to add to that?
1: Well, there's one other little caveat I had, yes. which is sometimes when we're having, and this is gonna come up a little bit later when we talk about what if trans- embryo transfers fail, So, I mean, embryo transfer is how we take the embryo from the laboratory and place it into the surrogate mother. And I was talking about protocols or preparations with medications and hormones that block ovulation, but there are certain situations where we do what's called a natural cycle embryo transfer protocol, which there are different reasons why we recommend that. That's the only situation where there is that theoretical risk of the um, surrogate's egg being involved, but in those agreements, We always stress that there are barrier forms of contraception or that surrogates abstain during their ovulatory window. Um, And again, that's really important that surrogates understand why that's important because we don't want them ovulating or we don't want that egg connecting with uh, their their partner sperm and creating an early pregnancy. So if there was to be a natural cycle embryo transfer preparation, we would give extra counseling to the surrogate around how to be careful around an unwanted own egg pregnancy.
0: Yes, and natural cycles. Would you say that you? know, I know we don't have this as on our list, but would you say that natural cycles are becoming uh, more frequently used? Do you, are you seeing so, well, the, that? well,
1: the whole space of IVF. So remember, IVF is used not just for surrogacy; it's used for people who have their own fertil, other fertility issues. Um, it is becoming an increasingly popular preparation method for surrogates. Uh, We don't have the randomized control data yet to support which is superior, but there are some theoretical benefits for pregnancy from doing a natural cycle. From a program perspective, they are a little bit more complicated in terms of the commitment of the surrogate. They require more visits, more coordination, less predictability in terms of timing. Uh, So I think it's a to be determined answer, but uh, certainly in my practice, we're doing more and more of those natural cycle embryo transfers.
0: Okay. So heading right into the, into the transfer cycle. So we've prepared for the transfer cycle. We've started our medication. We've got our transfer day. Uh, So what happens in a transfer procedure? Can we, can we give a breakdown of your surrogate arrives in in your clinic and what happens?
1: Well, so the, the embryo transfer is essentially the climax of all this preparation. So all, all the work that's been done, the medical screen, the psychological screen, the coordination, the building of the embryos, the the travel, the movement, it all comes down to the embryo transfer. And speaking from the Canadian experience, I mean, our clinic is in Toronto, and there are clinics located across the country, so are the surrogates. So what's interesting is it doesn't really matter where your clinic is and where your surrogate lives, because we can easily move people around. uh, And our surrogates typically arrive the day after the day before the transfer. The actual embryos are typically frozen, probably 90 plus percent of our embryos are frozen. Mm-hmm. And they're thought about a half hour to 45 minutes prior to the transfer in most cases. So what a surrogate could expect is to be at the clinic, probably for a half hour to an hour maximum. We have a procedure space for our surrogates as, as almost every clinic that you'd be working with would have with a dedicated nursing team, admin team. Uh, there is a, uh, an admission, like the surrogate would be brought into a specific space, asked to change, and then it would be like any doctor visit for, let's say, a pap test. So we, we have a procedure room. In the room, there would be a few characters. You would see typically the intended parent might be joining. If they're local, if they're international, they might be patched in on, on an iPhone or a screen. Uh, there would be a circulating nurse, an ultrasound technologist, the physician, like myself, uh, and then behind the wall, you would have a, you might hear the, the voices of our, our, our embryologists. The embryologists are the highly trained professionals that protect the embryos and help build them and, and thaw them and, and get them ready for embryo transfer. So those are all the characters. In our clinic, all surrogates are allowed to bring at least one support person, and we're, we're happy to have it now, I mean, COVID restrictions have been lifted for the most part, so we're very happy to have people bring support people. The actual examination, we'll start with an ultrasound, an internal ultrasound, which should be familiar to surrogates because they've had one before. Uh, And then the physician myself would enter. There'd be a few documents to sign to confirm the name of the surrogate and the intended parent, including uh, the details around the embryo. We then would perform what seems a lot like a a pap test or 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 if if you've gone to your family doctor for swabs or a cervical check. So it involves a speculum. Again, we we, we we do our best to make sure it's as as comfortable as possible. We prepare all of our circuits for the next steps. We talk them through it. Once the speculum is in place, uh, we then prep the cervix. You might feel a little bit of pushing and pulling, but this procedure is done without any sedation. It doesn't require any medication. I mean, if you want to take tunnel, it's fine, but uh, it, it really, the whole thing takes about two minutes. Once we're, we're sure that the uh, cervix is visualized, we then place a little catheter. Again, it would feel a lot like someone just examining the cervix. It should really not um, cause too much in the way of stress. And uh, and again, there's constant communication about each step. We then, uh, we inform the embryologist to display the name and and show the actual embryo on a short circuit screen. So you can actually see a computer screen that shows the name of the intended parent with the actual embryo, which many surrogates like seeing and the intended parents like seeing it. You actually see the biology. Uh, The embryo, once we are confirming the name and the embryo is in place, We ask the embryologist to load the embryo. So a surrogate might hear us giving out these commands. Uh, It's all happening in our lab. Our nurse would then pass a catheter that contains the embryo to the physician, in this case, myself. Uh, I would then tell the surrogate, be prepared for me to deploy the embryo. We place the catheter through the cervix. Again, it feels like a little bit of pressure. We deploy the embryo, either myself or an embryologist would assist me. That takes about like five seconds. Uh, And then we remove all... catheter and all the instruments. We get confirmation from the embryologist that the catheter has been emptied uh, and that completes the embryo transfer process. You notice I reference a single embryo. Single embryo transfer is our standard. Uh, I'm not saying that that is a law. There's some locations that will allow for multi-embryo transfer. That is a specific conversation between uh, intended parents, surrogates, and their providers and
0: JA supports the single embryo transfer policy.
1: Yeah, I, I would, I would expect that uh, in terms of after transfer care, we do have some literature on what to expect and some recommendations around activity. Uh, it's very normal to have a little bit of leaking spotting cramping after the transfer. All of those should be minor uh, in degree, like not requiring medical attention and travel is, is permitted pretty much immediately afterwards. So we have many surrogates mm-hmm. that will travel home that afternoon or that evening or stay over and go the next day.
0: Yeah. And many of them fly or they drive in. Some of them will take the train and, and, um, and still get successful after the fall.
1: There's a lot of misconceptions around bed rest and curbing activity and, and not, you know, not flying or not traveling. And I I think they're really myths. Um, No one has shown that lying in a bed and not moving, or even lying on the procedure table for an extra ten or fifteen minutes, it doesn't improve uh, outcomes. In fact, there are studies that have shown that rapid activity, so getting up right away, movement going on with your daily living, improves pregnancy rates because of improved blood flow to the that to the makes uterus. Sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That, that makes sense. And, and, and if I can throw my own analogy in there that I learned way back in like when I first started my surrogacy journey in about 2010, because I had questions like what happens to this embryo when it goes in there? Like how, how does it not fall out? <laughs> right. And, and the doctor I was dealing with gave me a great, uh, a great piece of information. He's like, Hey, take a ball of peanut butter, stick a piece of rice in it, roll it back up. And, <laughs> and there you go. Your embryo is not going anywhere. So I thought that was the perfect analogy for me at that time. Um, so, so speaking about embryo transfers and failing embryo transfers, we know that we're not always successful on the first try. Uh, what are some reasons that an embryo transfer might fail with a gestational right. carrier? I'm
1: uh, meaning assuming that there's been compliance to the procedure, accredited clinic, reputable team, uh, all of those parts being satisfied. The most common reason for an embryo transfer to fail is not the surrogate. The most common reason is the embryo uh, by far. Uh, And even if you have embryos that have been tested and analyzed, our tests are not perfect. And there are probably aspects to the embryo that we don't fully understand. And so most uh, high-end IVF clinics that have tested embryos will quote pregnancy rates somewhere in the sort of 50 to 60% range, maybe a little bit higher per transfer, uh, which means that a very large group of surrogates will not be pregnant off of a single transfer. but If they're able to come back the subsequent month and the month after that, if you can get three or four consecutive transfers with 60% transfer success implantation rate, it is very possible to achieve an overall cumulative pregnancy rate that approaches 80 to 90%, maybe even higher. So failure, unfortunately, is part of this, but that's per cycle failure. Overall failure is actually still quite rare. But to answer the question, what might be the reasons that would cause that increasingly rare event? Uh, There might be uterine factors, like we said, polyps or fibroids. There can be infections of the uterus. There can be timing issues that's becoming an emerging area. There may be deeper testing of the uterus that can allow us to understand the microbiome and some of the ways in which the uterus is prepared for uh, embryo transfer. So there can be reasons, but they're increasingly rare. and, And most of the success failure actually lies with the embryo, which speaks to another point, maybe the intended parents have an embryo in some other IVF center and you're going to move them, uh, like those questions might be posed to the center that produced the embryos because that's really where a lot of the success will lie.
0: Okay, And I'm so glad that you addressed that it's not the surrogate if she's followed her protocol, if she's taken her medications because she's gone through extensive testing um, and and we often find surrogates that have failed transfers blaming themselves for the failed transfer. So I'm definitely happy that you addressed that piece as well
1: we'd never point blame because we know that it's a biological process that has inherent limitations in it. Look, when IVF started 40 years ago, the implantation rate was 4% or 10% right. or something like that. Like in the late seventies, early eighties, we're now looking at implantation rates of like 60%, right? So things have improved a lot and surrogacy wasn't even part of the initial IVF phases and surrogates for themselves don't really have a fertility problem. So, yeah. I, right. you know, looking at those numbers and, and looking at how it's evolved, I think surrogates should feel very confident that as long as they follow the instructions to the best of their ability, there's a really good chance it's going to work.
0: And, but also understanding that as much of this process is controlled by hormones, artificial blocking of the ovulation cycles and all of those pieces. Once the embryo's in there, the control is gone. It's up to What's, the embryo at that point.
1: Yeah. Once the embryo is in there, it has to make decisions. Whether yeah. to turn over or not uh, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. So I guess these two next questions really just kind of fall into each other. Um, you know, the associated risks with IVF um, and how common that you, that you would see them come across your patients right. um, and the risks associated with surrogate pregnancies as opposed to risks associated with a traditionally conceived pregnancy.
1: The risks associated from a surrogate's perspective. Are the risks associated with any pregnancy. I mean, that's the general take home message, that if you've decided that you yourself and your medical team are comfortable with you carrying another pregnancy, that's where most that's where the bulk of the risk would lie in another pregnancy, whether you had a C-section before and you're going to be embarking on another C-section, or whether you've had issues with blood pressure, or blood sugar. Um, those are the, the big risks. The actual IVF itself, fortunately, is wrapped in safety. Um, the safety profile of an embryo transfer itself, as we described as a pretty minimalist procedure, I, I don't even quote a risk of infection or injury with embryo transfer, all the risks of surrogacy are tethered to the actual pregnancy. Now, people have looked more closely at IVF conceived pregnancies versus non, and there is some suggestion that they are a bit different. Maybe there is a slight chance of higher blood pressure issues in pregnancy, preterm birth, cesarean section. And some, some studies have suggested that babies are a little bit bigger when you do IVF, and some have suggested they're a little smaller. For most surrogates, I know you've had a few surrogacy journeys, but for most surrogates, it's their first non-own pregnancy journey. And so these are foreign things to them. Like they said, oh, I, I had four pregnancies and my blood pressure was fine. I didn't end up with a C-section and, and uh, I delivered at term. So when you look at IVF and look at those cases, there is suggestion that the obstetrical side of it may have a higher level of intervention and a higher level of complication but they aren't at the level where you would discount yourself right they're not at the level where we say embarking on a surrogacy ivf pregnancy is so dangerous that really better think twice about it that wouldn't be what would change my mind i would look at it in a a much simpler way and saying were my pregnancies safe enough that i'm comfortable being pregnant again. And if the answer is yes, from your end and the medical end and the psychological end, then that's really where it lies. I mean, I I think that we need probably more years of IVF to fully understand, but the hormone exposure with a surrogate pregnancy is not excessive. Um, Women that go through surrogacy pregnancies are not more or less likely to have cancers associated with hormones like breast, ovary or uterus cancer. In fact, they're less likely because of the pregnancies that they've carried. It will not affect their future fertility Uh, There's many women that will have a surrogacy pregnancy uh, and then go on and have their own child. You know, very often the perception is that you have to have completed your family and then you go on a surrogacy, but it's not necessarily unidirectional. There's nothing that happens with the uh, IVF surrogacy pregnancy that significantly puts a woman at risk at not carrying on her own again, or that she will need her own fertility treatment in the future. The risk is tethered to the pregnancy, whether it's surrogate or own own egg.
0: right. And that's great to hear because that is something, again, that we have questions about. But, but yeah, so so understanding that carrying a child as a gestational surrogate and carrying my own child, the risk factors for my body to decide what it's going to do medically are pretty much the same.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, you know, every time you get pregnant, whether it's for their owning or surrogate, they open themselves up to the risk of an ectopic pregnancy or a miscarriage or some failure. That's a risk you would have assumed anyway if you were going to try to make a baby. Right. If one was a surrogate trying to weigh the pros and cons of it. Um, I wouldn't spend too much time worrying about the IBF. I would, I would want to understand it. And um, I'd want to know what the commitments were. But I would really be more focused on what were my obstetrical risks like? What were my pregnancies like? And if they were painful and difficult, and or I had troubled pregnancies, then that may not be the best option for you. Um, right. I mean, the only thing worse than having trouble finding or not having a surrogate is having a surrogate that shouldn't be there. And you know we don't want people to enter surrogacy agreements and then have to cancel them because there were undiagnosed complications or problems that could have been identified earlier. So um, I, I think honesty, transparency, safety, and high level of success are what drive this process.
0: Great. Uh, So so my final question, Dr. Bratz, uh, and you spoke to this earlier about having surrogates across the country that come to your facility for their embryo transfer. Uh, So say we've got a surrogate that has gone through embryo transfer. She's confirmed pregnant. Uh, One of the questions that we often get is, well, if I live in BC, do I have to go all the way back to Toronto to see my doctor in Toronto after I'm confirmed pregnant?
1: Well, I mean, we support early pregnancies for the first three months. And there will be a hormone protocol and medication protocol that we either provide our surrogates with that are living far away or we'll we'll access at a local pharmacy. But no, we we arrange for all tests to be done locally. So if you're a patient of Dr. Bratz in Toronto and you live in Calgary, as an example, we will arrange for requisitions. And that's the beauty of the Canadian healthcare system. There's a lot of parity across the country. And so that will allow for the ultrasound or blood test that's done in Calgary for me to interpret it without any... Problem. So, yeah, for many surrogates, their only visits are part of their screening, their embryo transfer, and then the remainder is done in their own uh, uh, location,
0: their own medical community with the doctors that they generally know—doctors
1: or midwives or family doctors. So it doesn't have to be an obstetrician. We really want to recreate um, the positive experiences that surrogates have had in their own pregnancies. So if there's a specific provider that they've worked with and they're and they're friendly to the surrogacy process, that would be ideal. And we're more than happy to collaborate with them and educate them. And we really try and explain to the intended parents that even if they were in their past experience had used a midwife or a family doctor an OB, I say, and that's great that you had that experience, but look at yourself through the eyes of the surrogate and, and what would make them most comfortable? Because that really is what is paramount right now in terms of the safety of your child is to get through that pregnancy in, as a, in a seamless way as possible.
0: Yeah. And I was just going to kind of add to that a little bit and say, you know, we are in a great medical community where surrogacy pregnancies are taken on by midwives. Um, now, and, and if you have a midwife, it's okay to be under the care of a midwife because your IVF pregnancy doesn't put you at any further risk than your regular pregnancy.
1: Well, it is. Ident- so let me clarify. There are some risks as I identified them, but they're not at a point where every IVF pregnancy needs high level maternal field medicine. So it's identified as an IVF pregnancy and um, the surveillance is appropriate to that type of pregnancy, but it doesn't exclude a midwife from taking care of them. And the other beauty about surrogacy in Canada is there's no discrimination. So meaning if an IVF pregnancy, a surrogacy pregnancy rather has issue, it's not like the providers look at the pregnancy and say, Oh, sorry, you're a surrogacy pregnancy, please. We can't do this for you. It's actually the opposite. It's, it's, you're pregnant, oh, you happen to be a surrogate, we will do what we need to do to make sure both on the maternal side and the fetal side, there's the highest level of safety as if it was your own genetic baby.
0: Right. Thank you for your time. And thank you for sharing your expertise on these uh, questions. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your super busy day to answer these. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like more information on becoming a surrogate in Canada, visit jasurrogacy.com. You can find the link in the description box as well. Have a great day!